This is God's word from Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the, pre the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Um, imagine for a moment... It's the first day of math class, and you walk in, and you, you get, grab a desk, and maybe get out your laptop or a fresh sheet of paper, or whatever you like to take notes on, but you get ready. And your teacher or your professor, you know, whatever level of school you're at, they come in, and they make a strange announcement. And they say, attention, I'm doing something different this year. Instead of the assigned curriculum, you know, calculus or math or whatever, we're going to spend our time learning uh, Klingon math. I'm very interested in Klingon math. I want to teach you that instead of the usual stuff that we do. But don't worry. I'm not going to mark you. Everyone will get an A. There will be no tests, no quizzes, no exams. And then from there, the teacher just launches into a full semester of Klingon math. And at first, you're excited. You're like, this is new. This is very interesting. It's very weird. Uh, but you know what? No matter what, no matter how much I learn, I'm going to get an A. So, you know, win-win. I'm not too worried about it. But the problems will crop up later, of course, right? If you go on, the, your next teacher will expect you to have learned everything that was supposed to be taught. Your next teacher, they don't care about Klingon math. It doesn't help in the real world. Your A grade uh, won't help you when you haven't learned the right building blocks for future years. Your teacher, your professor, they, they weren't helping you, they were hurting you. By not teaching the right things, they actually did you a disservice. And today's text, it's not about math, but it's about spiritual priests, spiritual teachers, not doing what they were supposed to. They, they were not teaching the things that were supposed to be taught. Despite formal promises, that's all the covenant language, despite this long history of expectations, the modern priests have done their own thing. They've gone their own way, and the people are being harmed because of it. And the stakes are much higher than math. As important as math is, the stakes are much higher than that because the stakes are eternal. And the priests are failing. But let's, uh, let's dive in together. We're going to take this in three parts. We're going to talk about the proper role of a priest. We're going to talk about the stakes of listening. And then finally, the true priest. 
The chapter opens, and now, O priest, signaling Malachi's thoughts from chapter 1, if you caught that last week, continue into chapter 2. Chapter 1 was all about the people were bringing improper sacrifices, and the priests were allowing it, but the people were bringing lame and blind and sick animals that were offensive to God. But Malachi now comes and says, oh, I have something specifically for the priests, and now, O priest, this command is for you. And for the purposes of our outline, skip down to the middle of verse 4. In verse 4, God reminds them he's made a covenant with Levi. Now, what does that mean? Well, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Isaac, one of the 12 sons of Israel. And he eventually became the head of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as a man, Levi was not very noteworthy. He doesn't appear in the story that much. There's very little to commend him. He was just sort of one of this whole pack of brothers. But Israel eventually goes to Egypt. They become enslaved there. And after they leave Egypt, hundreds of, after hundreds of years of enslavement, each of the tribes, including the tribe of Levi, number in the tens and even hundreds of thousands. And they all come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to get the law of God. Israel falls into idolatry. They make a golden calf, and they worship it. This is a familiar story to many of you. But what you may not remember is that right at the end, Moses comes down, He gets very angry. The people are out of control. It's like this wild party or whatever. And he goes and stands in the gate of the camp, like right at the edge of the camp. And he says, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And you know who comes? Exodus 32, 26. The sons of Levi come. It's the sons of Levi who rally to Moses at the edge of the camp to defend the honor of God. And there's a fight. Israel fights with itself. Thousands of people die. It's kind of this crazy thing, but Levi took God's side, even when it meant fighting against their own people. And a couple of verses later, verse 29 of of Exodus 32, Moses blesses the tribe of Levi. Like, based on what they've done, he says, today you have been ordained. That's the word we use for, like, set aside for a special purpose. You have been ordained for the service of the Lord. And later on, when Moses gets new stone tablets, he goes back up and gets new stone tablets. Deuteronomy 10 says, God has from that day on set apart the tribe of Levi to stand before the Lord and minister to him. So what is this whole covenant with Levi? It's never spelled out exactly. It's never described in a formal way. But it's basically that Levi's people, his tribe, were set apart as priests to serve God. Even when they had to fight their own people, they defended his honor, and now they get this special role forever. In what ways did they serve? Well, let's return to Malachi. Look at verse 5. The covenant, the covenant with Levi was one of life and peace, which means God promised the tribe of Levi a full, good, blessed life, full of shalom, full of peace, full of the blessing of God. Still in verse 5, God says, and I gave it to him. God fulfilled his promise. He was good to his word. What he had promised the house of Levi, he delivered to them. God says it's also a covenant of fear. To formally serve God obviously involves some degree of trepidation and trembling. It's no small thing, by the way, to stand before another human and and speak the word of God to them. The house of Levi feared God. They stood in awe of him. They were appropriately afraid. Verse 6, what exactly did they do as priests? True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. We often think of priests like mainly they're offering sacrifices or maybe saying prayers. But one of the main jobs of an Old Testament priest was to teach the people. They were the experts in the law, in in the history of God's people, and other members of other tribes and their their own children. They'd come and the priests in every town and place would explain and expound the word of God. 
That's what's one of the main things they did. And for generations, God says, the tribe of Levi, they did this job very well. They gave true instruction. They avoided error. And further in verse 6, middle of verse 6, God says they also walked with him in peace and uprightness. See, a priest's job is not merely to teach well, teach the word of God, but to live it out. They are to teach with their lives, not just with their lips. And Levi had done this well too. They had lived as priests full of peace and uprightness for generations in Israel. The priests were trustworthy and good. They could be relied upon. If you caught them in an unguarded moment, they were the same. If you saw them at their kids' soccer game, you know, whatever, they, they were just the same there as they were on Sundays or on the Sabbath. And God says he blessed their work in the, at the end of verse 6. God said he used their words, he used their life to turn many away from iniquity. That's another word for sin. Good words, a good life, blessed by God, spiritual fruit. And God says in verse 7, that's how it was supposed to be. That's how the priests were supposed to work. They're supposed to speak knowledge and wisdom and truth as God's servants, and the people were supposed to listen. Now look, were all the priests good? Did they all speak truth and no lies? Like, no, of course not. What this passage is saying is, in general, they were doing good. They were doing right. Now, the closest parallel we have to uh, the teaching role of priests are modern-day pastors. Because they too, we, me too, are, are, are called to teach God's word to God's people. To call to live out God's word in peace and uprightness. I mean, look, all Christians do this sometimes. But pastors are specifically tasked, like, vocationally with this. We're supposed to teach and do well. And I know many in our society in Canada have felt burned or spurned by church and church leaders, pastors. But just imagine for a moment, got to use your imagination, that pastors operated the way Malachi describes. What if you could trust the words they say? What if their life matched up to the way of Jesus? According to a recent Gallup poll, Less than 50% of Americans, I couldn't find any Canadian stats on this, but less than 50% of Americans believe clergy are honest and have high ethical standards. And in fact, if you survey only non-Christians, which Gallup helpfully did, that number drops to 25%. So three out of four of our neighbors who are not Christians do not trust pastors. Now, nurses, by the way, rank as the most trusted profession. Congrats to all of you nurses out there. You're doing a good job. Clergy, on the other hand, we're narrowly beating out lawyers. Sorry, lawyers. Uh, TV reporters. I don't know if we have any of those here. Uh, and used car salespeople. That's about where clergy rank. And we'll talk about this in a different part, but I think often that reputation, sadly, has been earned and deserved. And what I'm trying to say here in this first point is it's just not the way God intended it. That's not what a pastor was supposed to be, not what a priest was supposed to be. The proper role for them is to be trustworthy, to be like, if you go to them, you're going to get truth and wisdom from them. And by the way, if any of you desire to be a pastor, a teacher in the church, understand, this is the bar. It's uncomfortably high. It's no small thing to teach others. Now, what happened since those golden days, since these days when everything was right and the priests were good, what's gone wrong? Well, part two, we're going to talk about the stakes of listening. Look at, look at verse eight. God says, here's what's gone wrong. You have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. And then down in verse nine, you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Now remember, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to teach right and live right. 
What does God accuse him of? He says, you've departed from the way, you've departed from a godly way of living, and instead of teaching truth, you are now being partial in your instruction. Basically, you failed both things. You neither live rightly nor teach rightly. Now, what does partiality mean? It just means treating people differently based on you know, some factor that you care about. Often you show partiality to people who have what you want. You know, rich, famous, powerful, better connected, whatever. Or just maybe even just towards your friends. And God specifically tell, accuses the priests, you're being biased in your instruction. You've not been teaching the truth. You've been holding back in some way. You've been softening things that you think might be offensive to people. You've been teaching partial truths. You've been teaching a new math, and it doesn't make any sense, and, it does, and it's not following the curriculum. And God's angry with the priests for failing both parts of their given role. Now, what does a failing priest look like in real life? I'm going to give you two made-up words. Now, I stole them, so they're from this uh, smart Bible guy named Ian Duguid. Uh, but two words, two ways that describe how, how priests and pastors often go wrong. Some become, ready for it, flaretics. That's a combination of flare and heretic. A flaretic. A flaretic is someone who pushes the envelope intentionally, spiritually, and they're happy to be seen and known for doing it. They're believing something contrary to the scriptures, but they're going around teaching it, living it out publicly and obviously. When you look at verse 8, it says many people are stumbling because of the instruction of the false priests. This is true of flaretics in our modern world. They have followings. They're, they're, they're wandering around teaching and proclaiming a false gospel. But that's not the only way priests or pastors go bad. Some become flaretics. Others become, ready for it, orthocrites. That's a combination of orthodox and hypocrite. Orthocrit. An orthocrit succeeds at teaching truth, at least on a surface level. They appear to believe what the church has believed for thousands of years. Their instruction seems fine. But underneath... They are deeply hypocritical. They've turned aside from the way with their lives. And it's usually kind of subtle. Orthocrits are often mean-spirited and vengeful and angry. And there's very little joy in their lives. And they get their kicks out of fighting for the truth of the gospel, which actually just means making fun of or denigrating anyone who disagrees with them. Orthocrits are always right. And their teaching, even though it appears correct, it usually just bends towards moralism and rigid rule-keeping. Now, I'm not sure I have to point this out, but I will. Reformed churches don't normally struggle with flaretics. We're very careful about those people. We often struggle with orthocrits. Where outwardly there's this sense that the teaching is correct. But we struggle with love and hope and gentleness and kindness. And, and this is what God said, this is what is happening to the priests in Malachi's day. They're not living rightly, they're not teaching rightly. Some probably struggled in one way, some probably struggled in another. But they'd, they'd, they'd left, they'd corrupted the covenant. And they were not good priests. Now what does God want from them? We'll look back to the beginning, verse 2. He wants them to listen. And he wants them to take to heart what he's telling them. If you look at verse 1, he says, This command is for you, you priests, if you're listening, it's for you. And of course, listening does not mean just like sound waves entering, you know, your ear canals or whatever. He says, take it to heart, lay it to heart, let it, let it go inside of you, be taken seriously in your inner person, change on the inside. He wants the priests go back to how you used to be. And if they do, this passage doesn't spell it out, but we've read the rest of the scriptures and we know God would forgive them. 
If they listen, they lay it to heart, God's, God's back on. He'll, he'll, he'll grant them forgiveness. He'll continue to use them. He will fulfill the covenant he made with them. If they repent, we can expect, we can fully expect, God stands ready to forgive. But what this passage covers is what if they don't listen? Then what happens? Well, God says, end of verse 2, he will curse them and curse their blessings. And indeed, in verse 3, God says, I've actually already started doing that because you're not paying attention. Now, cursing, I mentioned this last week a little bit, but it's it's the negative side of covenants. Covenants are sacred promises made between two parties. Often there's a lesser party and a greater party, and the greater party promises the lesser. If you live by the terms of our promises, our covenant, then here are all the blessings, here are all the good things that will happen to you. If you you fail to live by the, 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 the stipulations of the covenant, you will be cursed, a.k.a. negative consequences. And if you look in Deuteronomy 28, there's a, there's a long list of curses for those who fail to live by the covenant. And look, I don't mean incantations. I'm not talking about magic Harry Potter words or whatever. When I say curses, what I mean are real negative world things happening to them. Now, is the covenant the priests have with God the same as the one the people have with God? No. And so when God says, I'm going to curse you and curse your blessings, what exactly does that mean? I don't know that we can be 100% sure What we can be sure is, no matter the particulars, it's not good. If God says, I'm going to curse you, and I'm going to curse all the good things in your life, like, it's just not going to go well. We do get a little bit of it spelled out, if you look at verse 3. And here we get to the dung part, which I know all of you are very excited to find out, you know, what what poop has to do with all of this. We're going to get to it. God says to the priests who keep living wrongly and teaching wrongly, he says, I'm going to rebuke your offspring I'm going to spread dung on your face, and that the priest will be taken away with the dung. Now, that's harsh, and I want to look at why God's saying this. But first, the rebuke of the offspring, that's one of the things mentioned in Deuteronomy, uh, that, that in the workings of God, the obedience or sin of the parents passes its consequences onto the children. Some of you may have wondered, especially if you're new to Reformed or Presbyterian stuff, you know, why do you baptize children here? Why do you make such a big deal of of family units? It's because of passages like this where God is insisting over and over that there's more going on in a family than childcare until they go to college. Deuteronomy 18 says, the sin of the parents results in punishment for the family to the third and fourth generation. Now more hopefully, God also says that obedience and faith of parents results in God's love and blessing for the family for a thousand generations. So it's not comparable And moreover, the faith or lack of faith of your own parents is not determinative. God can save any. We believe that out of any kind of family. And not everyone who grows up under the blessing of God will remain there, of course. But nevertheless, God promises here the families and the children specifically of unfaithful priests will suffer for their sin. Suffer for the sin of the parents. It's very serious. God also promises he will spread dung on the faces of the priests. Now, technically, the word used for dung means awful. That's O-F-F-A-L, not the A-W-F-U-L. And the word awful refers to all the parts of an animal that cannot be used profitably. So basically, the idea is this. People would bring an animal for sacrifice, like a a sheep or whatever, and the animal would be killed, and they would use many parts of it for, for profitable things. The wool and the meat and whatever else would be used. But afterwards, after you were done taking all the useful parts out, there would be some of the bones, some of the guts, the entrails, and of course, like any excrement left in the body. 
And all of that together, that like pile of gross stuff, was called offal, O-F-F-A-L. And normally what you'd do with that is you'd take it outside the city or town and you'd throw it away or you'd burn it or you'd bury it or whatever, but it's gross, it's terrible smelling, it, it, it's yucky. And God promises the unfaithful priests, if, they, if you don't listen to me, he said, I'm going to spread the offal from your polluted offerings on your face. Now, why? <laughs> Still seems kind of crazy. Well, such a punishment is representative of what they were doing to God. The, the, the priests had made such a mockery of God, they'd created such a stench with their sin, the closest parallel to what they were doing was to be smeared with the offal of the diseased sacrifice that they'd made. Furthermore, priests, to perform their duties, had to be ceremonial, ceremonially, that's hard, hard word to say, clean. And that included, you were not allowed to touch a dead animal. If you were a priest, you do not touch dead things. So being smeared with the entrails of a dead animal would, would mean you can't perform as a priest. You're ceremonially unclean for a number of days. So it's not just humiliating. It's not just gross. It's not just representative of their conduct. God is saying, I am taking you out of your role. You're not going to get to be a priest anymore. You're not going to get to teach. You're not going to get to lead. In fact, we're going to take you away. And where they put all those carcasses, all those dead animals, that big pile of them outside the city, that is where you go. God is profoundly upset with these priests. Like, they are supposed to be Israel's teachers. They're supposed, when the nation goes off track, they're supposed to say, come back, you've gone astray. They're supposed to lead. And all they've done is go the wrong direction, and they've dragged all the people with them. And God says, no more. I'm not going to have it. Now, here's the problem lots of us have. We aren't sure we like this God. We're like, I don't know how I feel about that punishment. In fact, I'm not sure how to reconcile this, this God that we read about in Malachi 2 with all the other passages we have about Jesus and forgiveness and love. Now, we're going to talk about reconciling passages in a moment, but I will first submit to you that this passage helps us understand God's justice and his willingness to make rectification. And rectification means uh, action to put things right rectification. See, we look at a passage, and it's full of curses and dung smeared on priests' faces, and we think, man, that's harsh. How could God do that? And what I want to tell you is harsh. Have you ever sat or have you ever read about a young woman or a family or a child that has been profoundly sinned against by a pastor or priest? Have you read the stories where they will say he used Bible verses to justify his sin? Or he quoted verses to me while he molested me? Have you read these stories? And, or he was so utterly narcissistic that he wrecked the faith of hundreds of people. And they're never going to trust a pastor. And they're never going to trust a church again. Or you read the stories where this man is so conniving and so convincing. He's, he's led hundreds of people away from Jesus. For a God of their own making. Like, do you read these stories and just ache for everything that's lost when a priest or a pastor just goes off the rails? What we see in Malachi 2 is that the father sees, and his anger burns against them. And he's saying, I'm going to repay them. I mean, harsh, maybe, but part of us at least aches for real justice. 
And if we can feel it, at least if we can feel it in part, how much more does God? We sit on the outside of church catastrophes and think, this is broken. How is this ever going to be made right? How is justice ever going to be done? And what I would tell you is, if when you look at an evil pastor or an evil priest, and your blood does not simply boil sometimes at what they've done, then you have not quite come to grips with the depths of God. Because God stares at these evil priests and he says, I'm going to make it right. No more, you're not allowed to do this anymore. You're not going to get away with it. The stakes of listening are just incredibly high for pastors and priests. Listen and God will forgive. Fail to listen and there's humiliation and punishment and curses. That takes us to part three, the true priests. There remains a problem and here it is. Up until now, you may have concluded, well, Ben and Frankie, maybe the elders, they really have a lot to work on. (laughs) Those guys better be careful, uh, lest they fall under the same condemnation as the priests. And look, that's true. (laughs) I need to be very careful. But your problem is this. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. The Apostle Peter writes to Christians, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. You are a priesthood. And the Reformation slogan goes like this. The priesthood of all believers. Which means, yes, some people work vocationally as priests and pastors like myself. But in some sense, we all serve as priests to each other. We all have access to God. We can all speak to God. We can all minister. And it's a beautiful picture. Each Christian filled with God's spirit, working and living out the word of God. It's lovely. And we usually quote 1 Peter 2.9 because we love thinking about all the positive aspects of all believers being priests. But I don't know how much you think about the downside, which Malachi tells us is that if you're a priest, you're judged more strictly. Priests have a covenant to live up to. Priests are responsible for others. And unfortunately, all of us, me included, we've all failed in our role as priests. We speak truth sometimes. We also lie and deceive and tear down sometimes. And we speak wisdom sometimes, but we're also foolish. We should be living all the time according to the way of Jesus, but sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're greedy and vengeful. We should be helping others live by the way of Jesus, but by our lives and our words, we are causing others to stumble. The downside of being a priest is that the punishment for bad priests lies upon our heads. And we we all too are under a curse for what we've done. We're facing the humiliation our sin has brought. We are figuratively, we are smeared with this awful, and we are kicked out of the uh, the city. We are unfit to serve. We're all created to minister. That's what 1 Peter 2 tells us. But we end up making a mockery of it. See, the problem when you read Malachi 2 is not that we don't have enough good priests, and if we could just get a few more, we'd be fine. The problem is we don't have any good priests. There are no good priests, not all the time, not all the way down. What we need is someone who's going to come along who's never partial, never biased, someone who always has true instruction on their lips, someone whose life never wavers from the way, someone who guards true knowledge, someone who's a true messenger of the Lord of hosts. Listen, who do we need? We need Jesus. That's the description 
It's not me. It's not just someone 10% better than me. He came as the true priest that none of us was ever going to be. He was the one you could trust all the way to the bottom. You didn't have to worry in his presence. You never had a reason to distrust him. He was good with a capital G. And of course, what happened to him? He was crucified. Fleming Rutledge writes this. To Jews and Greeks alike, crucifixion was as low and despised as one could get. And they had a Latin phrase, damnatio ad bestias, which means condemned to the death of a beast. That's what crucifixion was, condemned to the death of a beast. Crucifixion was specifically designed to humiliate. It was an insult to dignity. The whole point was degradation. It was a political and a marketing move to make everyone who walked by the crucified person thinks, I hope that never happens to me. I never want to end up there. And Jesus gives himself over to death on a cross. And what happens on the cross is he takes all the curses of all the covenant breakers upon himself. And he is humiliated. And he is treated like an animal. And he is despised and abased. And he is smeared with all that we have done. And they take him outside the city to the place for lawbreakers and rebels and they crucify him between criminals. And he's ceremonially and in every way made unclean. And the crucifixion was horrid and gross. And God's judgment on evil priests becomes God's judgment on all of us assumed by the high priest Jesus in all of its gross detail. And the crazy part is He died for the phleretics, he died for the orthocrites, he died for the pastors, and he died for the parishioners who could never live up to the covenant. He took the curse and gave the blessing. His blood makes us whole and holy. And in a truly astonishing move, God died and God for the victims and for the perpetrators. He loved the killers and the killed. He died for people you and I would never die for. He died for all the priests you think are despicable. He came for everyone. Condemned to the death of a beast so that we might live. For God so loved the world. Will you listen to this God of justice and love? Will you hear his voice? He calls to you. Let's pray.